as usual, excellent job, worship choir. Thank you all so much. Friends, my name is Adam. If we haven't met, it's my joy to be one of the pastors here. And I wonder, have you ever been to another part of the country and just found that things worked a little differently, right? Uh, the first, maybe, maybe that's why you have loved living in Kearney or somewhere here in the county, because, you know, the pace of life, just a little bit different than not too far away in the city. The furthest east I've ever been is Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, PA. And my dad and I were there for a conference and ordered pizza one night. And I remember calling in, I was probably 19, calling in, and I think I hesitated for like half a second. And the guy on the line was like, come on, hurry up already. And I was like, ah! You know, he, he offended my Midwestern sensibilities, right? And, and this is an example of what international educator and author Sarah Lanier describes as hot climate versus cold climate cultures. In her book, From Foreign to Familiar, she lists the divergent values between what she categorizes as warm climate cultures and cold climate cultures. So warmer climate cultures tend to emphasize relationships while colder climate cultures focus on tasks. Uh, you know, uh, the guy on the other line at Domino's was just trying to get to the next order, right? Oh, come on with the order. Uh, flexibility and adaptable schedules mark warm climate cultures, and they tend to be less structured, where colder climate cultures value efficiency and, and timeliness and are very highly structured. Now, this may seem obvious, but warmer climate cultures are not only warmer geographically and in terms of climate, but also socially. And the opposite is, tends to be true for colder climate cultures. And I've heard some people say that they feel like Kansas City seems more laid back to them, kind of a more Western feel to it, rather than St. Louis, which feels like more of an East, East Coast type of environment. Yes. Now, these are very broad categories. Uh, they're not meant to paint folks with uh, a wide brush or to make assumptions. But I, I do think at some broad level, this makes intuitive sense to me, that the geography and the climate of a place have a massive effect on the people and cultures that are brought up within them, right? Think about it, especially centuries ago. Think about places in the United States that tend to be warm all year round, you know, Florida or some of the South, California, a lot of parts of California. Food grows all year long. And so these warmer places have a, have a reputation for being more laid back because, well, what's the hurry? Why do we need to hurry? Food grows all year long. And then it's also, again, before modern things like air conditioning, it's hotter in your house at 2 p.m. than it is outside. And so you tend to mingle more with your neighbors. You tend to see more people. And that builds a certain type of social culture. Now, think about a New England winter in like 1710, what are you doing in wintertime? You're by the fire trying not to die, <laughs> right? I mean, that's not an exaggeration. And when it is warm enough for planting, growing, and harvesting food, there's no time to waste because you got to get this done because winter is coming. And it's a matter of life and death. The Northeast was the cradle of our country's culture and conception. America was birthed in a cold climate culture. And you can see that reflected in a lot of our values. What's the old adage? Time is? Time is money, baby. Come on already. In our culture, productivity 
is a virtue. We wanna do more and be more. Our children have packed schedules with club teams courting scouts and scholarships as early as middle school. We begin emphasizing career paths in elementary school and the pressure begins to declare a major or what you're gonna do post high school well before it's over. Then as an adult, you've not only got your regular job, but you got your side hustle. Here's an article from January of this year. Here's how to launch a side business while still at your nine to five job. How's another job sound? Does that, does that sound appealing to you? There's a whole industry around life hacks and productivity tips, webinars, books, conferences. Here's a, here's a planner by Michael Hyatt to help. to our spiritual growth. This week is about how productivity, being more and doing more, might be unproductive to the spiritual life. So what I hope we'll discover as we study God's word together is that the measure, the measure of who you are is more than everything you do. Friends, the pressure to do more with less can, can just be relentless. Now I'm married to a teacher, so I might be biased, uh, for educators and administrators, I'm involved in, in multiple teams uh, here in the Kearney School District. And it's amazing to live at a place where I don't have to be like embarrassed to be a pastor in public. It's awesome. I love it so much. I think folks who invest their lives into students are heroes. They're heroes. And that's why it's so hard to watch the requirements of teachers just go up and up and up while simultaneously the amount of time they have to do all those absolutely necessary things either stays the same or goes down. My wife's a third grade teacher and I asked her like, how many plan periods on average do you actually get to, get to do? Because the other half of her plan periods are for other meetings or, or things that come up, again, that are required. She got this flyer in her mailbox last week and her district is offering on overcoming burnout and stress. I think that's very thoughtful and kind. Take a look at when they are. Find out? You want to burn two nights finding out how to solve it? <laughs> and I'm not trying to be harsh or mean. Um, I think her district leadership has done excellent. But I'm just saying, this is the, the irony. That, that even when we try to tackle this problem, we can't do it under normally scheduled professional development time. It's just too much. Doing more and being more all the time, friends, is, is not sustainable. In the Old Testament, we see that this production, of, of, at, this production at all costs mentality is not new. The Pharaoh of Egypt had it and ruthlessly demanded more of the Hebrew people who were being held in slavery. The book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and it records the story of God's people, the Hebrews, escaping slavery in Egypt and being formed into a nation of Israel. And we'll read uh, starting today from Exodus 5, verses 6 through 9. Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they made previously. Do not diminish it. 
for they are lazy. That is why they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. So Pharaoh wanted the Hebrews to do more work with less supplies. The deceptive words he's referring to are the, the prophecies, the, 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 uh, the, the, the language about God that they tried to hold together even while in slavery. That the truth of God would be still abiding with them in, in Egypt. But to Pharaoh, well, if you've got time for worship, then you've got more time for work. For Pharaoh, it was always about more. More work for more bricks, for more storehouses, for more surplus of crops, for more sacrifices to the gods of Egypt. More, more, more. This is why after the Hebrews were liberated out of Egypt, God's instructions to them were revolutionary. Exodus 20 contains the famous 10 commandments. And one of them is God's definitive view on production and rest. This is from Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And you shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. So this is known as the fourth commandment. Interestingly, eight out of the 10 commandments all begin with you shall or you shall not. This commandment is unique is that it begins with remember. It's been called the commandment that connects the 10 commandments together. The first three deal with God, the next six deal with neighbor. So in this fourth commandment, God wants his people to remember, to call to mind the creation story where God worked for six days and rested on the seventh day. And God commands them to imitate this pattern, this example, and mark out a blessed Sabbath day. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means cease. It's Hebrew for cease. In the Jewish tradition, it became a 24-hour period from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday where people ceased from work. So starting with God's is I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God also wants them to remember how far they've come. Part of remembering the Sabbath day is remembering the tyranny of Pharaoh who enslaved them in Egypt. And so when God commands these people to remember a Sabbath, he's talking to people who haven't had a day off in 400 years. People have lived their whole lives without a day off. This would have been absolutely foreign to them. So it's hard to overstate how shocking this would be. What a reversal of what the tyranny of Pharaoh, the yoke of Pharaoh had conditioned them to live under. So God's command to remember the Sabbath, it goes against the mindset of Pharaoh and it's counterintuitive to our culture today. Scholar and author Walter Brueggemann has called the Sabbath an act of resistance 
Author John Mark Comer in his book, The Relentless Elimination of Hurry, describes Sabbath as a spiritual practice to combat hurry. And we'll be diving into this uh, on our live stream, on our Facebook page on Tuesday night at the church's Facebook page. Um, we're also putting that on our podcast, uh, as well as I send out the video link to that in our newsletter. Because again, I understand the irony, just like, you know, a seminar on burnout at seven at night. Hey, you need to do less, except for come into this live stream. You should do that. <laughs> like, I get it. But we do need to invest some time in understanding the biblical root of these things and, and the spiritual depth uh, that really causes our hurry. And so that's why we've tried to make it available in a few different mediums to try and make it as convenient as we can, because I get it. I would offer Sabbath to you as the antidote to the constant pressure of productivity. To stop for 24 hours in order to rest, in order to remember and experience God's goodness. When we stop the production schedule, we remember that we have limits. When we remember that God is God and we are not, that's good news. Now, you may be thinking, well, I could never do that. And it might seem daunting. Maybe you too suffer from what I call time debt when your time is spent before you even get to it. You ever tried to schedule lunch with a friend or something? Or find a night to get together for dinner with anybody? Hey, how about next Thursday? Oh, no, I've got a thing. I've got a burnout seminar. <laughs> how about next Tuesday? Oh, I got to do the live stream. Right? And then it's like, well, how about when the moon is on the waxing gibbons in three months? How's that look? Like, I mean, it's just crazy. It's crazy. It's when your calendar feels so full that you feel like you don't even get access to your time. That's why we need to mark out our Sabbath time before productivity beckons. Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson, my guy, when I say his name right, he, uh, he's just one of my favorite authors. I, I, I just love everything he does. And he said, the key to this practice of Sabbath is the almighty calendar. Yes, but how? The appointment calendar is the tool. It is more effective than a protective secretary. It is less expensive than a retreat. It is the one thing everyone in our society accepts without cavil is authoritative. When I appeal to my appointment calendar, I am beyond criticism. Right? You ever say to somebody, oh, I've got somebody on the calendar. They're not like, well, what is it? And they're like, oh, excuse me. It's almost like they've offended you. Oh, I'm so sorry. The trick is, of course, to get to the calendar before anyone else does. I venture to prescribe appointments for myself to take care of the needs not only of my body, but also of my mind and emotions, my spirit and imagination. If nobody is going to prescribe it for me, I will prescribe it for myself. That's one, that's one of the, the reasons that it's important that we come together and worship to be reminded of the truth. We talked in week one about all the noise and, and about the pull to acquire more last week. And, and the truth is that, that most of the time in the world, people don't care about your spiritual health. That's not their concern. They're interested in what you can produce for them. So there's not gonna be a whole lot of people, maybe your mama, maybe your pastor, that are gonna say to you, hey, when's the last time you took some time for yourself? The list of people who will prescribe these things for you is not long. And so that's why I love what Eugene said, if no one will prescribe it for me, I have to prescribe it for myself. So friends, what prescriptions do you need 
in order to make time for rest. To remember that it's not what you earn or produce that gives you value. God has made you along with all creation and God called it good. You could think of the call to remember the Sabbath as a command, but I like to think of it as an invitation. Hopefully this, we shouldn't approach this in such a way that's a burden. A long time after Exodus, Jesus said in Mark 2, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. He said this in response to criticism he was facing from his adversaries about him healing on the Sabbath while he was working. And so I'm not interested in, in beating you up or being hard on you or trying to be Pharisaic or, or uh, you know, really a stickler for how your Sabbath could look. Any start is a great start and it's gonna look different when we're in different seasons of life. Right, I've had students come up to me and say, well, uh, you know, Pastor Adam, it's funny, my homework doesn't take a 24 hour break. I think that's a good point. Or some of us are like, you know what would be great is if my six month old would take a Sabbath from crying. <laughs> right, I know that life doesn't work this way that we're in different seasons. The point is that you stop and do something that can give you a rhythm and a break from the constant productive schedule. Right, sometimes we think of Sabbath as, well, I'm gonna work 51 weeks a year and then I'll take a week vacation. And Peter Scazzaro, another author, I'm throwing a lot at you today, he talks about kind of still missing the point. Like if we work for seven years, and then take a sabbatical. You ever caught the link between those words, by the way? A sabbatical. Uh, like, <laughs> I'm glad, that's a great start. A week vacation out of 52, one is a great start. But the point, if we remember to God's command, is not to take a vacation one day or seven days in one year, is to take a Sabbath one day every seven days. Right, that we would have this rhythm. Not that we would work, 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 stop for a week, like, like barely skid into that, by the way, and then start it all again. God commanded the Sabbath every seven days. And so the goal for us should be for this to be happening with regularity. And you might have to get creative. Can that be one evening during the week with the Saturday morning or maybe a Friday night and a Sunday morning? Hey, uh, claim chunks of time and fiercely guard them for your Sabbath and then practice them regularly because the power in Sabbath is how regularly it is repeated. And eventually it becomes a cherished part of your week. I think part of my main job as a pastor is, is to encourage you to, with something like this. Friends, I think you're already further along than you think because you're here. Right, Sunday is traditionally the Sabbath, Christians began worshiping on Sundays post-resurrection. And so the Lord's day in the Christian faith is Sunday. You're already here. And so worship is a crucial component of Sabbath. It's not like we're filling up our tank to go at it again for seven days. It's that we stop and we rest and we remember God's goodness. And worship is the best way I know to do that. Now, in my own life, I try to practice this on Saturdays. It's interesting being a professional Christian. 
right? Because this is, this is worship for me, but it's also work. Not that you all feel, make it feel like work. Um, but Saturday's the one day neither Sarah or I work. And so that's why if you've asked me to meet on a Saturday, usually the answer is, I already have something on my calendar because I do. Typically we'll sleep in a bit as much as our four and seven-year-old will let us. A lot of times we'll try and make a little bit fancier breakfast than the usual Lucky Charms, right, bud? Try and, try and, maybe we'll upgrade to the Ego. You know, it's warm. That's a, a big upgrade. <laughs> now this seems simple. Uh, and then the rest of the day we just spend together. Did it yesterday. Great day. What did we do yesterday, bud? <laughs> did we buy you something for your birthday? Got a bike for the birthday. That's right. So this seems simple, but it takes a fair amount of work and planning. Here's what I mean. I try and write my sermons on Wednesdays for a couple reasons. One, so that you all don't get the Saturday night special and it will be hurried and it will be bad <laughs> and it won't honor God to the capacity that it should with better effort and planning. But second, and I would say equally as importantly, I can rest with my family having one of my most important and time demanding tasks well done ahead of time. So that's, that's the key is some of the Sabbath stuff, it takes a lot of work in order to rest. Anybody ever not fooled with the vacation just because you didn't want to mess with setting everything up to be gone and then dealing with everything when you got back, right? Yeah, it's hard. And so Sabbath seems like, oh, it's so appealing and it can be so restful and it is. But in order to clear that time, it does take a fair amount of work and planning. I also have a group of pastors I meet with multiple times a year for a week at a time. Um, this time with my colleagues collaborating about life and, and ministry, man, it feeds my soul in ways that have just been vital to me since I started in 2019. Uh, and just have grown to love these folks so much. Last year, my family took a vacation to Dallas and uh, we got to meet up with a few of them and our families. It was, uh, it was an awesome trip. Uh, I, think we got a, I think we got a photo of a couple of them here. There we go. Man, without these folks, I'm, I'm not sure how I would have stayed sane during COVID. So I, I wanted to try and give you some type of window into how this plays out for me. And that'll look different for all of us. But Sabbath reminds us that we are worth far more than our productivity. Friends, the measure of who you are is more than everything you do. When the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt, they were treated as less than human and they were only as valuable as, as the number of bricks they could produce. Thousands of years later, we are in a culture that can hold people captive by the same lie. This is the yoke of Pharaoh. A yoke is the wooden apparatus that harnesses two oxen together. And the cruel truth is that the Egyptian oxen were probably treated better than the Hebrews. Centuries later in the Jewish tradition, the teachings of the rabbi that you followed were called that rabbi's yoke. That you're attaching yourself and your spiritual progress, your loyalty to this teacher. You're taking their yoke upon you. You're hitching your spiritual wagon to them. Some of that imagery is present in the stoles that pastors wear. If you come at 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve, you'll get to see that. 
but it's, 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 it's symbolic of the yoke of Christ. And so this yoke is, is something we subject ourselves to. Sometimes we opt in, sometimes we don't. But you have the yoke of Pharaoh, the teachings of Pharaoh, the belief of, of Pharaoh, the mindset of Pharaoh and of our culture is do more with less. Contrast that with what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Friends, does the constant pressure to be more productive have anybody weary? I would tell you, you're in good company. Take Jesus' yoke upon you. And part of Jesus' teaching is, is, is that you don't have to earn anything to receive God's love. You don't have to produce in order to gain access to it. He has already revealed it to you in Jesus Christ, who gave us the right, the Bible says, to be called children of God. And so part of this good news of Jesus, part of this yoke that we take on is that our standing with God does not depend on what we have done for God, but on what God has done for us in the life and teachings and death and resurrection of Jesus. So don't treat Sabbath as a burden to shoulder. Think of it as a margin of time that you dedicate to allow Jesus to share the load with you. I just love this image of being yoked together with Christ. That you don't have to shoulder all this alone because I'm with this guy. Take on the yoke of Christ. Stop, rest, and remember that God is good and that you are not God. Friends, all the noise we're subjected to, all the commercial messages every day, all the external desires to acquire more, to put something else in God's place, and the internal desires to do more and be more, all of these threaten our relationship with God and our, how we relate to our neighbor. They are all sources of hurry. Choose instead to reject the pattern of this world. Resist the yoke of Pharaoh and take on the yoke of Christ and find rest for your soul. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today and the chance to be together in your presence, to observe a Sabbath together where we have marked out this time as an appointment with you. God, we're starting out the week doing one thing right as we think of all the other places we could be and in our mind even races now potentially about all that we have to do and all that is awaiting us. God, we also admit that often we fall in temptation to do more and be more, whether it's trying to still somehow earn your love or earn the uh, admiration or respect of others. Sometimes we wanna do more and be more to be seen as great, to try and impress other folks. 
God, whatever reasons or motivations we have to resist ever stopping to rest, may we be reminded of that fourth commandment. That the life you, you call us to, the life you intend for us is not one of endless productivity and demand, but one where we follow the pattern you set where we would cease and look around and remember that you are good and that you are faithful and that you have brought us so far. God, we ask that whenever we worship, whenever we have this appointment with each other and with you, that you would come and meet us and that having been in your presence, we would walk away both challenged and encouraged by the reading of your word and that we would be strengthened to be the people you've called us to be. We ask all these things in your son's name, amen.